Hey, everybody. Something that I'm always on the lookout for is new products that help me optimize my mind and body. Now, throughout the last few years, I've tried a lot of different things. And some things I've liked, some things I haven't. And what I love to do is promote things and companies that I truly believe in, right? That actually show results in my own life and that actually work. And I've talked about this product before, but now I actually have it in my hands and I'll show you guys if you're watching, it's called Ketone IQ. Okay. Now I love this product and I become an affiliate with these guys. They're not a sponsor of the show yet, but they're an affiliate because I truly love the product that much. Not only does it help me cognitively getting out sentences better, being clear, thinking clear, but it actually helps me get into ketosis faster. So now you may be asking yourself, how can I burn off all of those holiday pounds that I gained? Or how do I get back on track into burning fat? Or how can I know what it feels like to burn ketones versus sugars, right? And if you don't know, you're either burning sugar or you're burning fat. And ketones are essentially you're burning fat. Now, it can be challenging to get into ketosis. It takes usually days of fasting, very low carbs, and it's hard to understand what, what it takes to get there. And a lot of people quit. But with this stuff, Ketone IQ, it gives you a dose of ketones so that you can actually feel the benefit right away. And now the more consistent you are with it, the more you're going to reap the benefits. So I'll show you guys. I'll take a little swig of this. Now, these guys sent me um, these cool little glasses. I'll take it right on here. I've already taken some today, but I'm going to take some more. So I take it up. You take it up to the line there. That's one dose and then so on and so forth. So here we go. Not the greatest tasting in the world, but it's awesome. And what I have noticed is that this will help me get over the hump of especially getting to the gym and working out that much harder and tapping into that extra level of energy. Also, if I know I need to do a podcast or something like that, I know that with a shot or two, it's going to take me to the next level of cognitive, cognitive function. I love this product and I want to promote it to people that are like me. You want to think clear, you want to feel better and you really want to tap in and burn that fat that you may be have stored from the holidays or whatever. Now, it's great. And if you guys want to get some, grab it. You get 10% off with my name with the code Lance. Try it out. I've had a few people reach out and be like, oh, I got it. I loved it. And it's a really good booster for you. So check it out. It's Ketone IQ. You guys get the bottles like this. You can order, I think there's some bigger packs. You can order one or whatever, get it shipped right to your door. And it's great. So I think you get, so each serving, you get like one serving of ketones just reading here and you, you can take one to three a day. So it's really good. And I love it. And the company's called HVMN. And I've talked about this before. There you go. Ketone IQ. And like I said, on the bottle, supports energy, focus, appetite control, endurance recovery, all of that. 
who doesn't need a little boost, right? Who doesn't need a little kick in the ass? I know I do. And I love new products. If you guys have any other products that you'd like me to try out, I'm looking to find great products that optimize mind, body, spirit, so that I can be as higher, highest performing as possible. So if you guys have any of those, please send them my way. We're looking to find more sponsors and more people, um, companies that I can try the stuff and share it with you guys. Because at the end of the day, overcoming adversity and be able to move through challenging times, we got to be feeling good. And whatever I can do to feel good in the moment, whether it's cognitively, physically at the gym, so that my emotional state is intact and I feel good, I'm always looking for things to get that edge. So let me know. But for today, get the ketone magic from Ketone IQ, 10% off with the code Lance. Enjoy. So one of the most important things that you can do is learn how to create awareness in your life. And since we talk about adversity on this show, this is something that I found very valuable in my life, which is why I've talked about it so heavily in my new book, Mastering Adversity. Now, that is how do you show up when adversity hits? I created the four adversity archetypes so that you guys can understand which behavior you show in your life when you get challenged with a difficult situation. Distractor, fixer, victim, or the warrior. Now, we created this quiz before we released the book a couple months ago, and we had a lot of interest and a lot of people enjoyed it. So I really want to offer this to you guys on an ongoing basis to be able to take the warrior quiz and discover your adversity archetype. Because it's interesting because I think we all fall into these different categories of these archetypes, but it's usually there's one that's the dominant archetype in our life. And in order to really be able to heal it or move forward, we have to understand it. We have to be aware that that's what we're doing. So in the link below, you guys will get an opportunity to take the warrior quiz and at the same time, get to kind of learn more about yourself. And I just want to say, answer this thing as honestly as you can, right? Like really be honest with yourself because the more honest you are, the more honest the results will be and see what you get. And I'd love if you could share it, share what you get on social media because it's powerful. A lot of people have done the quiz and enjoyed it. So that's one way that you can really develop that self-awareness and also for today's episode, it's brought to you by my new book, Mastering Adversity, where we got we dive deeper into those archetypes, right? So doing the quiz, you kind of get a taste. And if you want to dive deeper, you want to learn more about what we, the whole method of this podcast and everything that's come out of it, grab a copy of my book, Mastering Adversity. And yeah, dive deep, dive deep into the knowledge that I've accumulated from interviewing, you know, hundreds of people on my own healing journey. And yeah, get, get a new perspective on self-mastery. Because at the end of the day, when you're overcoming adversity, mastering adversity, it's mastering ourselves and how we see the adversity ahead. And as you continue to level up in your life, the more challenges will come, but you become better at dealing with them. So whether it is you want to take that quiz and join the University of Adversity family that way and understand yourself a little more, do it. If you want to take it further, again, grab the book, Mastering Adversity, greatly appreciate it. And you know what? It supports the show. 
it's the best way that you can support the show and just to make sure and help us to be able to keep going and keep getting great guests and creating great content so that you can enjoy and hopefully apply what we teach you and use it in your own life. All right. So take the warrior quiz information is below or grab a copy of the book, Mastering Adversity. It's greatly appreciated. All right. Next up, here's our guest. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to University of Adversity. I'm your host, Lance Isios. If you guys haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, make sure to go do so wherever you listen, whether it's Apple, Spotify, CastBox, wherever. And if you guys can, please leave us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. It really helps grow the show and helps it be get in front of more people. And that's the goal here is to help serve as many people as we can. Also, it's available on YouTube. So go over there and subscribe. Really appreciate it. We got a small channel right now, but our goal is to grow that thing and really improve as the year goes on. All right. So if you can do that, that'd be amazing. Today's guest, we have an expert in Bitcoin. First time I heard about this guy, I was listening to Tom Bilio Impact Theory last year, beginning of 2021. I remember I was in Mexico and or it might've actually, might've been at the end of 2020, early 2021. I can't remember. It was around that time, but I was really interested in um, hearing about learning about Bitcoin because I didn't really understand it. But Robert Breedlove was on the show and he was talking about it and it really made sense and it got a lot more clear for me. So um, he started to become, he started to get on a lot more podcasts and I started to hear him speak a lot more and I wanted to bring him on the show. So we finally got him on and he really gave us a masterclass in what, what is money? What is Bitcoin? What is going on with the financial system, recession, all of that stuff? the FTX scam that went on, we break it all down. So if you have any questions about crypto or Bitcoin, talk about the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. I really did my best to ask the questions that I thought would be the most useful for myself and break it down and make it as easy for you guys to understand. And I think we did a great job on this. So not a long conversation. It's around 40 minutes, but it's great. And I really think if you really want to understand the fundamentals of Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, what's going on in the world right now. This is an episode not to miss. Listen to it right till the end. And if you get value from this, share it with somebody that needs it. I know that a lot of you are curious about the situation with what's going on in the world. And although this isn't um, like a typical episode, you know, this, what's going on with inflation in the world and the economy is real life adversity that we all have to face, right? It's real. We're all going to deal with it. So we just, the best way to do it, just like I talked about many times, is create awareness and understanding around the issue in front of us. If we understand it, we can we can figure out the things that we need to do to move forward. And I think the big part about Bitcoin and the financial system is that we don't really understand it. We were told growing up, it's this way, it's that way. We buy into this system and then we're all confused when it crashes. So it's best to understand and control what you can control. And I think this conversation really helps out. All right. Enjoy the conversation. Robert Breedlove coming right up. 
Robert, welcome to the show, brother. Good to have you on. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. Hey, Lance. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, as we were talking about before, we're in some really interesting times. And, you know, we talk about all different kinds of shit on the show with adversity and mindset and all that. We haven't really talked about the adversity that we're going to face or we are facing in the economy and the financial system and crypto and Bitcoin. And I thought no better person than to come on and educate the listeners on all of it and, you know, kind of give them a little bit of a masterclass on what to expect. So I guess to kind of kick things off, maybe we could just dive into, you know, the name of your podcast is What is Money? What is the Money Show, right? And I would love if you could maybe dive into what is money and why have you taken such, why did you decide this path and why have you got so involved in this, this road with Bitcoin and crypto? Yeah. So, so I've always been a very curious kid my entire life and that curiosity has manifested its way in a number of different ways growing up. But when I figured out I could read on my own around the age of like 10 or 11 and really take my mind any direction I chose. That was kind of a just a very pivotal thing for me. And also there was a lot of pressure from my mom. I think that education was the solution to mo most problems. Mm. So I had developed this. It was an affinity for reading, but also kind of a purpose behind it that if there's any problem I'm dealing with in the world, I could go read about it and figure it out and, you know, take steps when solving it. So. I, as a young man, so this is like late high school and then in college and then early in my career, I've become very, I looked very closely into economics. I was reading a lot of The Economist magazine. I was reading about really just financial literature, strategy, history of economics, all of these things. I was not at this time exposed to Austrian economics, which was very transformative to me at a later time, but I was still very interested in how the, the world worked from a a trading financial standpoint, just how all these pieces work together. So I discovered a book around that time. This is like 2004, 2005, I'm probably 18, 19 years old. I discovered the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is written by G. Edward Griffith. And it, it, it spells out the inception story of the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank of the United States. And my revelation at that time was central banking was really the core problem in the economic. And there's a lot to talk about here, but let's just say that, you know, capitalism is premised on this idea of individuals owning themselves and owning the things they create in the world. And then we all have this kind of exclusive access or control over the assets we justly acquire. And then we trade those things with one another. And this unlocks the division of labor and specialization. This is what creates all the wealth in the world, all the luxuries we have. The reason we have a laptop that we're talking to each other from thousands of miles apart and nice microphones and nice cars and digital technology and medical technology, all of these things result from that process of people trading with one another and specializing in, in particular fields. And the net outcome of that is all you have to do as a participant in a truly free market capitalist society is specialize in one thing, be really good at one thing. And then you get to trade with others and enjoy the things they're all really good at. 
So we all like, it's us acting with complementarity, right? Like you, wherever you're weak, I can be strong and vice versa. And we all get to benefit from one another's skills or specialties. That is the opposite of what a central bank is. A central bank is not about that at all. A central bank is about stealing from productive market actors through the monopolization of currency issuance. And that monopolization, that process entails coercion and violence. The proceeds stolen through the central bank printing of money also fund war, fund global warfare. So this whole process we call free market capitalism that creates all the wealth and solves all the problems, at the heart of every modern economy, we have an anti-capitalistic institution called the central bank. So this was a very bitter pill for me to swallow. It is, I've analogized it to, I mean, not, it's more than an analogy, actually. I think central banking is a watered down form of slavery. It's a way of stealing from everyone, stealing the fruits of people's labor in a way that's not so visceral, not so obvious, which in one way is better, right? You're not, you're not, we're not in chains. We're not getting whipped and told to pick cotton in the fields necessarily. But at the same time, because we've invisibilized the theft, it's perpetrated at a much larger scale. So the number of human hours stolen under a central bank fiat currency complex is much higher than say the transatlantic slave trade even. And I've written a piece on this called the masters and slaves of money that quantifies, quantifies those hours stolen. And so this is all before Bitcoin. I had a very deep kind of upsetting realization that the money is broken. The incentives are broken in the world. And that is, that destroys, I think who we are, our potential as human beings. Even the paths that we develop along individually in terms of our personality and our, our moral composition, I think that is degraded by bad incentives. And so, you know, I guess the, the impetus for the show is like, wow, this is a huge problem. Nobody understands it. We like, I have a master's degree in accounting, accounting and finance. I've never been taught what money is. I've never been taught one day of personal financial management. Yet, when I showed up in college at 18 years old, they were ready for me to sign the student loan paperwork, right? Where I, yeah. I'll sign on the dotted line, get a big check that I have to pay back for 30 years. You know, you're 18 years yeah. old, you have no idea what the rate is, what this means. You're just like, I signed here and I get a check. Great. Yeah. So and if you want to start a business, it's so much harder. It's hard to get money for business. Honestly, and it's not so easy to perhaps perceive how bad it is when we're, we're up close to it. Mm. But when you take a step back and start looking at the evolution of money through a more historical lens, then you understand that, you know, again, printing money or quantitative easing or increasing the debt ceiling, all these euphemisms we hear for allowing the central bank to manage the money supply. It cannot do anything mechanically to benefit anyone else other than central bank shareholders. Only they can benefit from that model. It's equivalent to giving one group of humans the power to print money that everyone else is forced to use. So it's anti-capitalistic. It's an institution of systemic theft. I think it's responsible for the failure of civilizations. Right, we ancient Rome fell after they started debasing their coinage. They started diluting the monetary protocol, which diluted and broke their political protocols, which ultimately caused ancient Rome to collapse. That 
I mean, that's a really big deal, right? It's something yeah. no one understands, the thing that's creating existential threat to civilization itself, and all of it's kind of hidden behind this veil of a somewhat simple question, should be a simple question. What is money? What is money? Yeah. We use it, we use it every day. We think through it. Isn't that crazy? It's the most important technology in the world, but because we have this generalized ignorance about it, that opens up an attack vector for charlatans and scammers to basically pretend that they're acting in your self-interest, right? That the mm. central bank is here to make sure there's full unemployment and price stability, right? These very morally righteous sounding aims that somehow the people inside of this institution are just so selfless and good to us that they're, they're taking time out of their busy day and really committing their life to solving these problems on our behalf. Like it's all this just big pile of steaming bullshit that people yeah. are being fed so they can continue to rob them by inflation and taxation. So that's why I feel very passionate about it. It's like the biggest problem in the world hidden in plain sight. And I think to, you know, plunge the depths of that realization, you just need to ask this question, what is money and really dig into, dig into the answers that you find. And, and hopefully that will help disintegrate a lot of these illusions that we deal with in the modern world. Yeah. The first time I ever had the awareness of all this was watching Zeitgeist back in the day mm. <laughs> and talking about all the central banks and all the different shit. It, it, it blew my mind, but at the same time, it's, it's hard to believe it's hard to wrap your head around. Right. And then now here we are and you start to hear people talking about it more like yourself and you start to see what's happening with, inflation and everything, it becomes a lot more real. And I think having people be educated on this stuff is so important, especially when it comes to things like inflation. And I think we that term gets thrown out a lot, right? People are hearing about it. People are hearing inflation, recession, all these words. Can you speak to that? Can you kind of identify, just explain people, what is inflation? And what are we looking at when it comes to a recession? Are we in one? Is one coming? If you could break that down for people, that'd be amazing. Yeah, inflation is a dangerous one because so people typically think that when the prices of something, the price of something goes up, that's inflation, right? And that is, that's price inflation. It's such an ambiguous term. I hate using it, but... Mm. We're kind of trapped in this linguistic reality, largely crafted by the central bank, actually, through, through funding Keynesian economics and whatnot in, in universities. But there's price inflation. So that's the price of something going up. This can happen for any number of reasons, right? You could have maybe the supply of the, let's use steak, one of my favorite commodities. Me too. Maybe the supply, the new supply issuance of steak went down. So if, if supply goes down and demand remains the same, well, then price goes up. Or maybe supply remains the same, but demand for steak goes up. People are waking up to all these bullshit fiat foods and realize they need some nutrient-dense beef to cure their, their metabolic conditions. Maybe just demand goes up and supply stays the same. That can increase the price of steak. Now, obviously, these work in reverse as well. If you decrease demand or increase supply, you can, you can decrease price. But 
The, when I use the term inflation, when I invoke that term, I'm not referring to price changes at all. Actually, price inflation is a consequence of what is typically called monetary inflation. Now, monetary inflation is when a specific group of individuals have built a legal wall around themselves. It's called a legal monopoly. So through the coercive apparatus of the law, they have said this, these group of individuals can engage in this business practice exclusively. If anyone else tries to engage in this business practice, we will use violence and force to shut them down. That's what a central bank is. Central bank says these individuals exclusively have the power to print money and control the currency. Anyone else tries to print currency or introduce a competing currency, we will shut them down with the full force of the law. So. That when, when I say inflation, I mean specifically that group of insiders, central bank insiders, using their full arbitrary discretion to just press print effectively, expand the money supply arbitrarily. That expansion of the money supply is used to generate revenues for themselves in both the form of seniorage and also interest revenues, because a lot of these dollars are loaned into existence. U.S. government will create Treasury bond, say, hey, Federal Reserve, here's debt. I'm promising to pay you back. Federal Reserve will control P, print money out of thin air, and they'll swap these two shit coins. So you get government producing debt. This government can produce as much debt as it wants. Federal Reserve can produce as many dollars as it wants. And so long as the government is willing to borrow and the Federal Reserve is willing to lend, they can continue printing money and stealing from the productive economy. So... When I see inflation, that's what I mean. The arbitrary expansion of a fiat currency supply within the bounds of a legal monopoly. And again, that business could not persist if it was exposed to real competition. Like if you or I could go out and start a competing currency, then we could outcompete the U.S. dollar in two seconds because the U.S. dollar expands really rapidly. And it's not, well, it's a bit more complicated conversation, but let's just say that the violence and deception is necessary to preserve the integrity, the quote unquote integrity of the U.S. dollar. Otherwise, in a free market competition, it wouldn't last. Everyone would choose gold or Bitcoin or something that was more adequate as a store of value. You asked about the term recession too. So recession, I think, historically is defined as two consecutive quarters of economic contraction. You know, we're in weird times, man. When you, yeah. And I think these things are related. When you start to debase the medium of exchange, medium of economic exchange, which is money, the proceeds stolen through that process are often used to fund the debasement of our most primary medium of exchange, which, which are words, right? We're using this software. You and I are using the software mm -hmm. called English, an open source software. We both have consensus on the meanings of words. That's how my mouth noises are decrypted by your ears and you understand what I'm saying. Now, when you start to, when you monopolize money and then people are able to steal from the entire market economy through the process of, of inflation and taxation, you can now use those stolen proceeds to attack language itself. You can create things like wokeism, critical race theory, two plus two equals five. Like you can just literally make shit up and fund it. Crazy. And then this creates confusion.
right? Yeah. People that are running this software, they're confused. Like, well, I thought a recession meant this. Now it means that. I thought a woman gave birth. Now you're telling me a man can give birth. You know, like it, a vaccine is supposed to prevent illness. Now it doesn't. Like it, they're just attacking language such that normal, rational actors cannot engage in authentic dialogue and, and get to the truth. Like if we don't have consensus on words, again, these mouth noises that I'm making, I'm speaking Chinese. I presume you don't know Chinese. I can make a bunch of mouth noises that I understand, or they would they would fall on deaf ears, right? Yeah. And when you create that situation, you're now there's there's social divisiveness, right? Like you and I now don't have consensus on the words, Confusion. so we can't reach truth, right? So what do we yeah. what do we get? We get this disintegration of social cohesion, this this divisiveness amongst amongst people within society, and what does that lead to? Demand for more law and order. Demand for more government. I can't get along with other individuals because the words don't make sense and the money's debased and the prices are going crazy. And, you know, this new politician tells me if I vote for this guy, then it's going to lead to some bad outcome. So people, it's like a giant psychological operation, as far as I can tell. You're just trying to create confusion among the minds of men such that they beg for stronger governance, such that you have an excuse to expand as much as you want. And you know, I, I think these things are all connected. You 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 debase the economic communication protocol, which is money. You distort the pricing signal, which is useful for moving human time, energy, attention, and capital in the world, trying to satisfy the wants of other humans. You disturb all that communication process and you you get to this point where we're talking about the definitions of words that we've known about for hundreds of years. Like, yeah. why are we talking about it right now? It's crazy. Yeah. Like, nothing's yeah. changed. Yeah. The Stick words to... have actually changed. Yeah. It's just one group that's trying to attack it. They want to yeah. attack definition and consensus on words such that there's confusion yeah. that we go crawling to, you know, nation, nanny nation state saying, regulate me harder, daddy. Wow. And that's, that's the world we live in right now. And it's a real fucking mess, but uh, yeah, the Bitcoin component to all this is just human beings are addicted to money printing. We can't resist it. I mean, it's proven historically, we just cannot resist it. If you can get into power and you can print money, you're going to do it. And Bitcoin is quite simply money that you cannot monopolize and cannot print. So it's kind of like a, a mechanism for us saving ourselves from ourselves. What do you say to people that argue with that and say, oh, well, the government could just take it over because they hear that all the time. Like, what do you say to somebody that, you know, because I've, I've heard people that are, you know, in the stock market or very, you know, financially literate say, well, there's no way it'll ever be what they think. There's no way it'll, the government will allow that. What do you say to that? Yeah. Question's how. Hmm. How would they not allow it? No one knows how to turn off Bitcoin. Why is that? Can we can we dive deeper into that? Like for the people that may not know, like why why can't they? What is the like reason? The internet. So unless you know how to turn off the internet everywhere in the world forever, it's not enough to turn it off for a few days or a few weeks or a few months. You have to turn it off permanently. That is the analogous question to how you turn off Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin, when you're running a node, you are running all of Bitcoin. You're not trusting anyone else. You have the entire history of all transactions. You have all of the code 
that runs that software, there's nothing hidden, right? This is one of the least understood aspects of open source technology. You can't hide anything in it if you wanted to. It's open source. It's 100% transparent. There's no, there's no information asymmetry whatsoever. Perfectly symmetric information. So the, and this is a common stumbling block for people as they say, oh yeah, Bitcoin is a big deal. Wow. We do need money that you can't print. This is a very powerful technology. It disintermediates the transmission of economic flows around the world, but the stumbling block goes, well, great. If it's all that powerful and effective, then governments clearly aren't going to allow it. And I think this is some kind of a weird, we have this weird deification of government today. We actually think it's almost like we've removed just like Nietzsche's death of God, right? We took God out of the equation in secular society. Yet human beings have this natural religious impulse, right? We're tribal creatures. Yeah. We need to be assigned to some larger thing. And it's the nature of wars of vacuum. So we pulled G-O-D out of the equation and G-O-B fills the vacuum. And now I, I'm very disheartened to see this, but a lot of young people thinking, oh, we just need to tax the rich harder and pass more laws and that will fix the weather, right? <laughs> like, yeah, it's fucked. It's so fucking asinine yeah and yeah we 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 deified government and we think for some reason that they're omnipotent and can just whatever or can just decree that bitcoin goes away or that this is not legal and but none of this by the way is where we came from again back to like in ancient Rome, there were there's a period where or like where we get english common law for instance english common law is not something someone decreed someone didn't come in and say this is the law this is how it works they actually observed we observed disputes over many thousands of lifetimes right we saw how people would have disputes they would engage in them and then we would resolve them and the patterns that we observed over time are in terms of the types of disputes people had and how they resolved them this kind of organically grew to become English common law. It's discovered law rather than legislated law. It's not one guy saying, we're going to do this because I said so. It's a lot of people over a lot of period of time saying, well, this is how we've done it historically. And so it's, it's kind of growing organically and, and changing itself at the edges. That's common law. And so this entire idea that laws are something man-made, this is all kind of a modern misconception. They're man-made in the sense that we have to enforce them. We have to decide what the proper mode of being is and then enforce that way of being within a, a certain society. But it's not, again, common law was never the opinion of one king or one god king or one pharaoh or any of that. It's, it's a democratic process, an observational process, an empirical process, right? We're learning about how human beings solve these problems. And so... Today, we have no notion of that. It's all about what legislator is passing what law. And so I think people really struggle. People think that government is God. Government is the dominant institution of the day. Government does not suffer trade-offs and can solve any problem just by the stroke of a legislator's pen. And I think this whole, that entire conception is just a mass hallucination. Government's just a business, guys. Mm. Just like every other group of humans. They're here to make money. And it just so happens government generates revenue exclusively 
through coercion, compulsion, and violence. That's, I'm not making this up. This is not my theory it's or truth. my idea or opinion. That is exactly, that's the definition of the state, the social apparatus of coercion, compulsion, and violence. So when you have an institution that derives its revenues solely by that method, we need to just throw light on all of this. Yeah. I, it blows yeah. my mind that it, yeah. it is really self-deluding to think that, oh, this business yeah. that monopolizes force has somehow become omnipotent and now they can fix weather with a bill. I can, I can yeah. pa pass a, a carbon tax policy that will fix the environment. Like it's fucking bad shit, crazy, insane. Nothing, yeah. nothing. The legislator's pen never fixes anything. It creates no new wealth, no new innovation. It can only steal, it can only reallocate, redistribute wealth. Only entrepreneurship can solve problems. This is the only way human beings advance the human condition is through engineering efforts. All of this is done through entrepreneurship. The state serves only the purpose of keeping the peace, preserving life, liberty, and property. Anything beyond the scope of that is a corrupt government as far as I'm concerned. What happened with FTX? And for people that have heard that, and now they're a bit confused as to investing, can you speak to that whole situation and what went down? Yeah, this one's extremely simple. Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Hold your own keys, always. If you're not holding your own keys, you don't have Bitcoin. You have an IOU to Bitcoin. Just like if you have dollars inside of a bank account, if online banking, those aren't your dollars either. That's a creditor-borrower relationship. You have loaned the bank your money. They owe it back to you. But if at any time they don't want to give it back to you, then you have to sue them, right? As a, as a defaulted borrower. FTX is a custodial exchange. They hold people's Bitcoin and other crypto assets and they provide exchange services so you can swap your assets. I think they also provided some yield products and other financial stuff. I've never used FTX. I don't know. From my kind of 10,000 foot view, this is just the latest crypto scam and collapse, right? And you could avoid all of it with just following that one maxim, not your keys, not your coin. If you're not holding your own Bitcoin, it's not yours. If you loan it to someone else, you have taken on what's called counterparty risk. And the brief history of crypto and the longer history of humanity has proven that counterparty risk is to be avoided at all costs. Right. If you give someone your money and you're paying them to watch after it, they now suffer from what's called the agency problem. That they have an incentive to operate in their own best interest, not your own. And often their best interest comes in conflict with your best interest. So we have a number of institutions in place to try and protect from this problem, like the SEC and CFTC and all these regulatory bodies. But the simplest way to obviate all of it is to just hold and control your own assets. And then you don't have counterparty risk. You don't need to worry about these conflicts of self-interest. You don't need to entangle yourself with the regulatory bodies, which are highly ineffective, by the way. Of course they are, because they're paid for by proceeds stolen out of the pockets of taxpayers. Right. And it's so much easier to spend, to be profligate, which means to spend recklessly other people's money than it is your own. When you don't earn the money, you don't have skin in the game. You don't have this incentive to behave properly.
Well, mm-hmm. surprise, surprise. Right. Every government organization that is paid for by stolen proceeds does a really garbage job of service because, hey, it's stolen money. They'll just steal some more. Well, if I were to steal the first round, they'll, they'll steal some more from you. So FTX, here's the last thing I'll say about this. I described that cycle of U.S. Treasury can issue infinite government debt and they'll sell that debt to Federal Reserve, which produce infinite dollars. And this is the, you know, relationship that causes dollars to be printed ad infinitum. That's just a shitcoin that you can create U.S. Treasury bond and shitcoin U.S. dollar and you just swap them out over and over and over and then you spend the dollars freshly printed dollars first when prices are low as they enter wider circulation prices go up and everyone that's forced to use dollars outside the central bank is being taxed or robbed this is the the, the inflation tax that whole dynamic is the same thing ftx and alameda was running right just like produce new shit coin pump it with existing customer proceeds that are being stolen wash rinse and repeat so if you thought FTX and Alameda was a big blow up, just wait till the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve blow up because it will happen. It's, yeah, they're running the same scam, just at a much larger scale. So just to break that down. So what you're saying is these are exchanges. And when you buy on the exchange, you don't want to hold it on this exchange. You want to put it and store it on your, on your wallet, right? Your coal wallet. Or, Correct. Multi-city so, is what I recommend. What do you recommend? Sorry. A multi-key or multi-signature wallet. So you're holding it in self-custody. Yeah. But you have more than one key. Okay. So that you have a three of five or a five of seven. And that way you have, in a multi-city, you have both self-sovereignty and that you control the asset, but you also have redundancy. So if you put it all in one wallet and you lost the wallet or you lost the key, you'd be fucked. Yeah. But in a multi-sig and you have three of five or five of seven, you have some fault tolerance. You can lose a couple of keys and still still have a a quorum so are we at risk then for any exchange now like we just we don't want to keep it on the exchange is what you're saying right like binance number one yeah he's not your bitcoin cool i I can't say that loudly enough bitcoin has been saying this for years and 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 yet we watch these catastrophes happen over and over and over and over you hear that everybody don't leave it on the exchange i've heard that too Okay, sweet. <laughs> Just two more minutes, okay? All right. Okay. All right. All right. So I want to just ask again around Bitcoin versus Ethereum. Now, what is the difference and why do you like Bitcoin more than Ethereum? Just to break it down for people. I'm trying to simplify it as much as possible for people. Yeah, that's. I mean, here's the super short answer is that Bitcoin is the only crypto asset that's decentralized. Now that word, it's a loaded term because every crypto project calls themselves calls themselves decentralized. And Bitcoin is often referred to all these projects as DINO, the acronym D-I-N-O, decentralized and name only. Decentralization means that there's no individual or group that can change the rules. And that's not true than any crypto asset ecosystem other than Bitcoin. So Ethereum, the number two crypto asset by market cap, is not decentralized. Provably, right? We already, we've already seen the DAO hack back in 2016, I think it was. They rolled back the chain, right? Because it wasn't technically a hack. It was someone just abiding by the existing rules. 
but there was a software exploit that the developers did not identify. Some hacker, quote unquote hacker, was able to run the rules that Ethereum had written for itself and steal $160 million. Well, the developers in a centralized decision decided that was not good for the network. So we're going to roll the chain back and fork it. And that we now have what's called Ethereum and then Ethereum Classic, right? Ethereum Classic is the, the rolled back chain, just the, the one that was hacked originally. That's only possible with centralized, centralized crypto asset. It's only possible. You can't do that with Bitcoin. If there was some smart contract inside of Bitcoin and someone ran it and stole a bunch of money from it, well, no one has the power to roll the chain back because it's actually decentralized. So it's all garbage. I think, you know, there's just, there's only one use case as far as I can tell for a time chain, but by the way, it's not a blockchain blockchain is some marketing buzzword that got picked up by <laughs> other, other people in, in crypto and Satoshi in the white paper called it a time chain. And as far as I can tell, the only viable use case for a time chain is global digital non-state money. Everything else is, is not. The time chain is not used. Uh, so all the other theory here, crypto assets, these other market use cases and niches that are trying to be addressed, I don't think any of it matters. And to the extent it does matter, it, it is definitively smaller than the market for money, which is the biggest and most important market in the world. So, and then finally, technically, a lot of these things in Ethereum, they're just it's just theory. It's just, you know, constant articulating of what things maybe could be if we could fix computer science problems, A through F, and then maybe fork to this consensus protocol. They're constantly moving the goalposts and describing new use cases in a process that I call innovation theater, right? You're just constantly acting like there's a new cool shiny object over here. And there's enough information asymmetry where people don't know what the fuck you're talking about, that they'll just buy into it. Like, oh, that sounds cool smart contract and internet, what do they call it? The world computer and there's just a lot of BS, frankly, and uh, it's not decentralized. Individuals control it. So that's a deception. A lot of technical hurdles to overcome. If all the technical hurdles were overcome, the total addressable market for all other 30,000 crypto assets combined, if they all succeeded wildly beyond everyone's imagination would maybe be in the tens of trillions. Bitcoin on the extremely low ends its total addressable market is a hundred trillion dollars. And that's just doing what it does exactly today. You don't need to, you don't need to add anything else to Bitcoin core, not to say that you can't, but you don't need to, it just needs to have stick to the supply cap of 21 million and generate blocks every 10 minutes. And that is competing for a hundred trillion plus dollar market space. I mean, it's me, it is like, I've invested in a lot of stuff and I've looked at a lot of things from a lot of different angles. And this is by far the most obvious thing in the world. Like just buy the thing that already works is truly decentralized and is competing for a giant market space and ignore all the noise, ignore all the charlatans and the noise and the scammers. And it's not, you know, people struggle with this. People really struggle. They're like, it can't be that simple. Ethereum yeah. That's the thing. I'm like, I'm like, I why read, is this so hard? The, the, what is it? Cardano white paper, whatever. Like, you're forgetting, by yeah. the way, speaking of psychological operations, the one use case for shit coins that's proven is they've been used to fleece retail investors out of a lot of money. 
So just like the US dollar and treasury bond relationship that's used to steal from people, shitcoin projects are used to steal from people rampantly, right? A lot of it's VC insiders doing the stealing and a lot of it's retail investors getting dumped on. So that is not something, you know, they're going to pay to try and get people to believe whatever they can, right? So they'll write fancy articles about Ethereum and Ethereum, the fork and the merge, and you're going to get all these fancy websites, big cool icons. And like, they're trying to create this interest, create this innovation theatricality so that you keep putting money into this thing and holding forever and getting dumped on by VCs. Right. Like it's another fucking psychological operation in a game and just, just a way to systematically rob people, just like the thing we're trying to escape. So crypto, central banking, all that bullshit can go in this box over here called scams. Humans have been running so long as they've been able to run them. And then in this other box, we have Bitcoin, which is money that protects you from scams, protects you from scammers, allows you to insulate yourself from all the bullshit. So they're not even the same animal by any stretch of the imagination. And Unfortunately, me saying this typically doesn't resonate enough. A lot of people have to come into Bitcoin, learn about Bitcoin, yeah. then get excited by shitcoins, and then get robbed and wrecked by venture capital firms or whatever. They have to feel the pain of losing money. And then they come back to Bitcoin and say, oh, this is the only thing that mattered in the first place. I can't believe I got distracted by these shiny gambling devices over here. And then that's... Uh, process by which bitcoin maximalists are forged mm. so glad you explained that man it's so important for people what would you say if you had to give people three of the best practices to walk away with today that they can do to improve their financial situation or make better choices or just some simple steps that they could take what would you recommend yeah i mean it's really yeah first of all I can't prescriptively tell anyone what to do ever with their portfolio or their lives, or that's, that's very presumptuous if anyone does that. Mm -hmm. So the number one thing I always advocate for is study, right? Like research, learn, educate yourself, develop an actual worldview, right? Look out upon the world, look through the eyes of others through reading whatever media format you prefer, do your homework, as I would say, develop an actual worldview. Here's where I think we are in world history. Here's where I think we're going. Here are the risks. Here are the opportunities. Here are the associated industries that matter at this sort of span of, of human history. And then start to try and build a portfolio, construct a portfolio that reflects that worldview, right? Because if you don't understand what you own, then you're not going to do well. Even if you own the thing that's great, right? If you own a bunch of Bitcoin, but you don't understand it at all, you don't have conviction in the asset. Well, then you're either, you're probably going to sell it when it either collapses in price or surges in price, right? And a lot of people do this. They buy Bitcoin early on, not knowing what they have. It doubles in price. They sell it. They think they're a genius. I was one of these people back in 2014. Or you buy it, it goes down 50% and you're shaken out of your position. You're scared shitless and you sell it. So like that doesn't work, right? You have to understand what you are. Otherwise you're not, you're going to get shaken out of your position. You're going to get emotional basically. So you need to have this rational overlay on your portfolio, but it has to be based on your actual, your actual hard 
earned worldview. Like you've done homework and you've established a worldview for yourself. That's my only prescription. And that's because it's unique to each individual. Now, if you're asking me from my perspective, having done that work and developed a worldview for myself and a portfolio of construction that reflects it, what do I do? I buy stats every day, put them in a multi-sig, not your keys, not your coin, right? And then I buy more when the price dips. I guess beneath all that is I run profitable businesses. So I have an income. I take in more than I spend. So I have profit margin and I'm circulating that profit margin back into Bitcoin as a long-term savings device. So simple stuff for people, not your keys, not your coin. Use multi-sig, you get redundancy and self-sovereignty. And then just make more than you spend, right? Pretty straightforward. Timeless grandma's wisdom, just save your money. The one caveat to grandma's wisdom is you can't save your money in dollars, at least not for the long term. I'm not against, say, I have, you know, I hold dollars for the businesses for short-term liquidity and whatnot. But for long-term savings, dollars are an absolutely terrible idea. So the caveat to grandma's wisdom to save your money is, well, you just have to save it in hard money, you know, physical gold or Bitcoin. And I think that gives individuals the most amount of options in this highly uncertain world that we're going into. Love it, man. Where can we learn more about you? Where can we dive into more of your work? Yeah, sure. So you can find me online and go whatismoneypodcast.com. That's got links to all the podcast distribution platforms, Spotify, Apple, et cetera. It's also got links to the YouTube. It also has links to my social media pages. My biggest social media platform is Twitter. And my handle is at breedlove22, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. Awesome, man. And Instagram and everything too. That's where I've been following you. Yeah, Instagram is at breedlove underscore 22. Awesome. So. Dude, thank you so much, man. It's much needed. It's much needed you're, you're to educate people on this because a lot of people are confused, like you said. And it's important, especially to people in my audience, a lot of personal development, people are starting to realize and starting to grow and starting to be like, wait a second. And I really like to bring people that I trust and their opinions. And I feel like the more that we do that, the more we really educate people with the right information. So thank you. Yeah, man. Happy to do it. And I hope that, you know, I don't even like to call it educating because I'm not, I'm trying to learn myself. So I yeah. call it learning out loud. I'm not here to like get on a soapbox and tell you what to do. But I hope that people will at least engage with that question, what is money? I, f- I find it just endlessly fascinating. If you take it seriously, you know, like really, you know, they say you can follow the money, right? If you're trying to figure out what's going on in a situation, especially if there's some corruption going on or some complex scandal and you just follow the money, it's kind of like that. You're just following the money throughout human history. And then you see how societies have formed around it. Individual psychologies have been shaped by it. You come to see it as this kind of primary motivational technology in the world. And then that helps. Once you get all of that framing, you can look out on this world like, oh, that's why there's so much bullshit because the money's monopolized. So they need to feed me some lies to get me to buy into the treasury dollar scam. 
or the FTX Alameda scam. There's a great piece written in 2014, I think by, by Michael Goldstein titled, Everyone's a Scammer. And it's, yeah, it's a great, great way to look at the world, man. We're all just animals. We're all trying to get ahead. And the trick to transcending our animality and becoming civilized is to just create incentive structures that are really hard to game and then make theft very expensive. Yeah. And we've made a lot of progress on that front, right? We have the rule of law. We have some other, we have prop, you know, relatively strong property rights in Western, in the Western world. And I think Bitcoin is just a continuation of that enterprise. Just make theft really hard, really expensive, and then let humans self-organize around that paradigm. That's how we create the most wealth in the world. That's how we create the most wish fulfillment, let's say, for human beings. And yeah, the, you know, the monkey on our back right now is just government. We need to defund central government and increase individual sovereignty and freedom. And that's hopefully the pathway to a better world. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. My biggest takeaway was really getting a better understanding of Bitcoin really what's going on with inflation, recession, all of this stuff. These words get thrown out. And I think Robert did a great job breaking them down. Curious to think, hear what you guys got out of this, because just asking these questions, it was almost like a masterclass for myself. So I hope you felt the same. I hope it was really clear. And most importantly, you're walking away here with some new knowledge that um, you may not have before, right? Because we got to understand this stuff for us to make the right decisions. And you probably, if you didn't take notes, highly recommend going back and re-listening to this and taking notes because I took notes while talking to him and very, very powerful stuff. All right, if you guys got value from that, share it with somebody that needs it. I know there's lots of people that do. And if you aren't subscribed yet, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to this. And if you can leave us a five-star review, it's greatly, greatly appreciated. Helps the show grow. And of course, we're available on YouTube, small channel. We're looking to keep growing it this year and I need your help to do that. So thank you everybody. Much love. We'll catch you next time.